Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Amri Johnson. Amri is a social capitalist, an entrepreneur, a behavioral change expert, CEO founder of Inclusion Wins, and also the author of Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and Sustainable. We spent most of our time focused in the conversation on Amri's book, Along with the additional perspective he brings to the DEI space, currently working and living in Europe. I really enjoyed the conversation. I am sure you will too. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavakoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast on your favorite app. And when you get a chance, leave a rating and review that will help more people find and benefit from these conversations. Now, here is my conversation with Amri Johnson. Amri Johnson, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. It's my pleasure, Mahan. Glad to be here. Can't wait to talk about your book, Reconstructing Inclusion, Making DEI Accessible, Actionable, and sustainable. Before we get to that, would love to know, Amri, whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing has impacted the kind of person you've become. Wow, it's a great question. I grew up in Topeka, Kansas. And so I lived there for 18 years until I went to college. I grew up with an entrepreneur and an educator. My mom's family was a family of entrepreneurs. So I grew up with a family of entrepreneurs. So that mindset of take it and make it work and bring it home to your family was something that was always taught to me. My father, his particular main business was the funeral home business. So my father owned funeral homes in Topeka and Lawrence, Kansas. And my dad worked really hard. But the one thing I learned from him was just like a deep level of integrity and compassion all the way through obviously dealing with families in their times of need but also in the way he dealt with everybody. If he was feeling something, he shared it and then he was done. If he saw somebody in need, he just helped them and he never said anything about it. So I watched my dad being in service. That was his life. And that level of integrity around that was clear. My mother, she had a really strong academic side and she got her PhD. She got it granted to her when I was nine years old. So I was going to graduate school classes with her a lot. So I was going back up and down the road. So she put me in the student union with the college and graduate students, and they <laughs> cared for me while she was in class. And it rubbed off me being a voracious reader and following that because I saw my mom doing it all the time. So it was like, that's what you're supposed to do. So those influences were there. So many other things and so many other people growing up in my church and my usher board, uh, Sister Thelma Hayes, people like that, that they just were my community and things that I was learning from them without even realizing it that I'm to this day appreciative of and have shaped me tremendously. It's so beautiful to reflect back on all the different people that have contributed to who you've become, Amri. I know your mom has played a significant role in your life and you 
dedicate your book also to your dad yeah. and the integrity that he had that has guided you all these years. Now, how did you end up veering either off course or on course into DEI? Weren't you an epidemiologist. <laughs> <laughs> was I am. I still see the world from the lens of an epidemiologist. So it was really interesting during the pandemic. I'm here in Switzerland and I was like a little guilty. I was like, I should be out probably helping with contact tracing or doing something in my country. I think I got over it pretty quickly, <laughs> but <laughs> it was on my mind. Um, yeah. So when I was in public health, I started off my kind of early research was in firearm injury and firearm death intentional injury. And so I was looking at how firearms were causing disparities in particular communities. And they were usually poor, lower income communities, but they were also disproportionately in communities of color. So that those dynamics of poverty and violence were going together and some other factors that the data called out that were really clear about early education, two-parent household, all those things that the economists have been talking about since the 90s, maybe even the 70s, 80s. So that was always there for me. So I always saw health inequities or health disparities as at the center of the reason that I was really interested in public health, really starting back in college with the AIDS epidemic. So I worked with a gentleman named Bill Jenkins, may he rest in peace, was just a powerful influence in my life. So Bill was an epidemiologist, PhD trained, and he just gave me this perspective on the world that was like, look at data, but also look at your heart. So don't just go on data and stop there. Go on data and then really ask the right questions of yourself and the things that are surrounding you so that you can couple that data with the embodied experience of the people that you engage with. So that was really important to me. Having that lens, I started a couple websites. I was still working full time and I started a niche website first for the southeastern region around jobs. So it's called Georgia HealthWorks. And then subsequently, I created a national one that was focused on people from underrepresented groups getting into the healthcare field called Diversity HealthWorks. While I was doing that, I was like, you know what? I've been hearing about this diversity consulting people. So I just started calling a bunch of them, like cold. I must have <laughs> called 20. I wrote an email was the killer app as it is to some extent today. And I started emailing all these people. And I even sent some regular old snail mail and only one or two called me back. And one of them happened to be Leslie Traub, who was the co-managing director of Cook Ross based there in DC. And then I ended up talking to Howard. I actually drove about three, four hours to meet Howard in Nashville from Atlanta. So that was our first meeting. We hit it off and they brought me in to do some things around the product they were doing that was in the healthcare space. And subsequently, I started working for them and became the executive vice president for a few years. And this was my career. Great mentorship, great coaching, great really entry with a master at his craft that brought me into the field in a way that really worked. Kind of one other piece to that is there is a scholar in the diversity space. He was the father of diversity management. His name is Roosevelt Thomas. I knew about Dr. Thomas when I was in college, but I was an English major, biology minor, because I was pre-med. So I was so into going to medical school, then eventually public health school, that I wasn't thinking about diversity. But he was at Morehouse teaching. But finally, I found out about him, and I just started following him. Every time I heard he was speaking somewhere, I'd put on a shirt and tie suit and go to the building like I worked there and would break in so I could 
hear him talk. And between Howard and Roosevelt Thomas, those were my two early influences. There's some others like Mike Heider and others that have influenced me and several others in this work. But those two were really my imprint in a way. What a beautiful way to view your journey into DNI, Omri, in that there is a growth mindset of saying, I can learn, I'm going to seek out the best in the field and learning from them. Howard and Leslie have been dear friends for a quarter century. So it is a small world as you talk about Howard. But also part of what I know is important to you is the fact that this is a journey, not an end result. And that Mm. growth and learning needs to happen for all of us. Now, one of the challenges has been, while a lot of people have used the term diversity, not many know what it means, but beyond that, what's happening is that people are going into camps. In some cases, they say, I don't want to hear about it anymore, or they zip up and they send me emails, Amri, or pull me aside in organizations. I don't do diversity and inclusion work myself. And they say, all I do is I go in the room and I shut up and I don't engage. So when it comes to diversity, what is it? And how can we engage more people in these conversations? It's a question that I think we all have to grapple with. I'll tell a story and then I'll give the answer. One point, one of my spiritual teachers came in town in Atlanta. I was dealing with some stuff with the business and I was just belly aching. I talked to him about it and he was like, he listened and he asked me a few probing questions. We finished the conversation and he said, it's really hard for people to be honest. And I said, yeah. And I felt vindicated. I was like, yeah, those people over there, them, they're wrong. (laughs) Then about a month or two later, I really reflected on what he said, because he's always saying stuff and it's the stuff that you don't really fully get until later. So I was like, wait a minute, he wasn't talking about anybody else. He was talking about me. (laughs) And so at that point, when I put up the mirror, I was like, was I being fully honest about where I was causing the matter? And so as practitioners, that level of honesty, because it's really difficult, Strictly when your paycheck, the up and send quick clear quote comes, it's hard to understand something when your paycheck depends on you not understanding it. I had to be really honest. What am I really creating in that particular situation? But in everything that I do and in everyone that I engage with, particularly in a place like culture and diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you're impacting people's lives. And if you're not fully responsible for what you're doing, not being honest, and it could be harmful, even though your intention is absolutely towards transformation, it could actually be the opposite of that. So what's the answer to that? I define diversity similar to Roosevelt Thomas as any mixture of similar and different attributes in their respective tensions and complexities. So the nature of us having distinctions and differences is tension. And the nature of any system that has multiplicity, which is pretty much every organization, is complexity. And so if you're managing that tension and complexity, then you don't see yourself outside of the paradigm of diversity as a term. And it's been really interesting, Mahan, there's been like this reframing of what diversity, equity, and inclusion are, and it's diversity, equity, inclusion is for the most marginalized. And that's even been incomplete because mostly we're talking about people that work in companies. 
and we're not the most marginalized. (laughs) So it's a really interesting place that we're in where, particularly since the murder of George Floyd, a lot of people entered the fold and a lot of people have a lot of passion around the work and I commend that and I appreciate it. And it's an incomplete notion if you think you could lead people into work this complex without having some depth. And we've done it. I'm not going to say whether it was right or wrong. I just don't know if it's effective. So the answer is diversity is everyone. And when I talk about the notion of accessible with DEI, it has to be accessible to everyone. And if it's not, it's probably not going to have any significant long-term value to an individual or organization. It might feel that way because you might feel good about something. And we've talked about racism, which we've done a lot over the past couple of years. We've talked about sexism, which we did years before that. (laughs) We've talked about whenever somebody is dehumanized in the LGBTQA plus community, we talk about that. And so it feels like we're paying attention to it. But what we're doing is reacting to symptoms. And that leaves us in a space where we're like, we'll just kind of whack-a-mole with the work instead of really creating the conditions for all of our distinctions and all of their multi-dimensions to come in and thrive wherever we might be. I love the way you describe diversity, Amri, and that's what it takes for us to be able to make real progress. It is an inclusive view of diversity Mm. rather than a marginalized view of diversity, which has in cases been counterproductive and in some cases it has been destructive in organizations where people don't want to touch it, don't want to go near it, as you said, because it's seen as benefiting a marginalized group, which typically those are not the people represented in the organizations that we interact with. And besides that, it does more harm than good. So I love that perspective, more inclusive perspective on diversity. Now, you also talk about in terms of inclusion, even the title of your book is Reconstructing Inclusion. Why reconstruct inclusion? Well, the book starts with deconstructing the notion of DEI because we've held it in a particular way for almost 50 years now, And it started really around affirmative action, equal employment opportunity. It was in that space. And that was the space that it needed to be in at the time. And at the same time, we didn't do enough long-term research to even validate if that was the best move. And what we're seeing now in the pushback against affirmative action has brought that to the fore. And it's not just pushback from the white blokes on the Supreme Court. It's pushback across the spectra. And it's not just people that are non-Black or non-people of color. It's including people of color that are pushing back on it. Now, because of that, and because we've held on to that, at some point we're moving into this space of inclusion. So there was diversity, then there was inclusion. We're like, yes. And then Howard and other pioneers, particularly Howard really pushed out the unconscious bias because he was saying that a lot of these things that are happening are automatic and people aren't fully aware of them. And then people were like, no, it's race, because then George Floyd got murdered and the police started back with Mike Brown being murdered um, by the police. And then all of a sudden it went right back to race heavier than it ever had been before, particularly after the murder of George Floyd. So the answer to deconstruction is 
do we fully understand all that's happened over this period of time? And are we looking at it with the utmost honesty about what's been created in our space? And what's been created in our space is not what we wanted it to be or want it to be yet. And that has to be fundamentally about how we're thinking about the work. So that deconstruction is an honest look, kind of a a step-by-step look. It's not to annihilate or make everybody wrong that did this work in the past, but it's to move into an understanding that DEI is a paradigm that is for everyone and that we can make it accessible so people understand where they fit within that paradigm, that it's equitable, that we are vigilant about creating equity around context or access, whatever it might be, but we're vigilant about that and making sure that things are fair, not just in stream. And this is something that's important, Mahan, is we focus a lot about equity in stream. And so as an epidemiologist, if I'm looking at something and looking at a system, I'm not just trying to treat the disease when I see it, because I'm not a physician. I'm trying to prevent the disease from happening to more folks. And that's upstream kind of in the metaphorical sense, where we're creating the conditions upstream and not just waiting to see the sequela come downstream and then say, oh, look what happened. And that's what we've done a lot of lately. And that's part of the deconstruction too, is even to move away from just looking at the disparities as being about one thing. So right now, all the disparities that are happening to Black people are about racism. Now, I was in that space in my life when I was younger. Like, yeah, everything's about racism. But I'd also read all the papers from The Economist that said there's other factors upstream from early childhood education to poverty that aren't just impacting Black people. So it's more than just those factors. There's some racism. It's not more than a certain percentage, and it's not entirely because of race. So the equity conversation, I think, is incomplete. And the inclusion conversation has not gotten clarity because people think inclusion is just the opposite of exclusion. And inclusion is a lot more layered than that. I have lots of definitions for it. But the one that we use the most is inclusion are actions that create the conditions for everyone to thrive. And so if you're putting those things in action, then you have, with intention, made it a priority. And you know how organizations are. You work in organizations. If organizations are prioritizing something, you know it. It's not ambiguous. So I talk about unambiguous prioritization. That's where the action comes in. It's consistent. And everybody's putting in those actions. Even it's not just the training. It's everyday ways of being that create that. So The deconstruction is deconstructing the old notions. The reconstruction is reconstructing the notions of what it can be with the outcomes always of people thriving and organizations being generative. So we're reconstructing it. Not necessarily we're getting rid of all the old parts, but we're rethinking them and we're actually taking some of the wisdom that has come down from people like Dr. Roosevelt Thomas and Howard into where we are now so that we can have a conversation that really will create what I think all of us intend to create that really can be transformative. But right now, it's not that yet. (laughs) I appreciate a couple of points that you mentioned. One is that it requires going upstream and seeing contributing factors, not necessarily isolating them to one. And I do want to touch later on on inclusion as systems thinking. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to find out your perspectives on, Amri, before that systemic thinking is would then 
single interventions be counterproductive? And if not, how should they be approached so they are not counterproductive? If you implement an event, events have a lot of power, but they have to be really designed so that they get people involved because sometimes it's only the people that were already like the choir that's involved and a couple of the ministers are in the pulpit giving the message. Sometimes the audience is there, but you have some people that are in the front rows of a church or a synagogue or whatever it might be. And then the people that are in the back, like, all right, when can we get out of here? (laughs) And I think if you want this to happen, it has to be everybody's in and they have to see where they fit into it. And so if you create an event, you create an event designed for everyone and you don't stop there. You create it with the sense of you're taking something away and we're going to do something with this at whatever level that you're engaged, we're gonna be coming back to you within two weeks to talk to you about what we created. And if it's not that, you're gonna be hearing communications about all the things that are happening so you can vote with your feet if you wanna engage. And not everybody will, but if we can sway some people who are on the fence that don't see themselves fully in it, that they wanna get involved, we have a greater chance to potentially create something because people feel like they own it. But if it's just an event that oftentimes the events that have happened over the past couple of three years have been really beating down a particular group, usually white guys. And what that did is it didn't open up dialogue. There were some people that did it well, and they had those dialogues, and then they created programs or put resources on the table, and they knew that the resources were insufficient, but they were very deliberate about putting that out, communicating it and saying it's not everything yet. And we're not going to stop engaging in these conversations with those folks and stakeholders internally, but as well as our external stakeholders that we're in relationship and partnership with. Single events can be good, but they can't stop as the single event. They have to have something tied to a longer term strategy, a set of actions, or invitations for people to engage further over time. It can be done well. And as you said, it requires a different kind of thinking. You also mentioned inclusion as systems thinking. How does inclusion fit in with systems thinking? You quote Edwards Deming, and I love this quote from him. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And I repeat that with clients and organizations because a lot of times they talk about the many years that they've been committed to whatever the subject matter might be. However, the results that they're getting are different. Yeah, That's the quote I refer to. So how can inclusion be approached with the systems thinking Yeah, I think about a lot. It's sometimes hard to get your arms around systems thinking. There's so many scholars that have talked about systems thinking, but I think it's a clarity about and the interdependencies of every organization and its systems. Every organization runs on a set of systems. Some of them you're very much aware of. You can put your finger on. They're actually called a department or something of that nature. And on the other side, they're hidden systems. So you don't even know that they're happening. For the ones that we can see in most organizations, the systems thinking is thinking on the interdependencies of it all and saying that everything is impacting everything. And sometimes people can try to isolate things, like the behavior of one person in leadership is impacting negatively if they're toxic 
multitudes, even if they don't even have any direct contact with them. So that's one example. But the way we think about systems thinking is we try to boil it down around organizational design and all the systems that you can find in an organization and how are we designing those. So the system that you start with, we usually use the work of Jay Galbraith um, and his star model. So you always start with strategy. So your organizational values, and I'm not talking about shared values, I'm talking about the values of how and why you're going to do something and what triggers you to do or not to do something. And so if those values are clear and you're acting on them, that's really embedded into your strategy. Sometimes the ones that are articulated on the website are not the ones that are actually valued in the organization, right? A lot of times that's the case. (laughs) So those values are there and then it's capability. So the strategy always has that inside of that. Then it comes down to how is power distributed and how is the organizational structure in a way that enables things to move quickly or not. And then we get into something in Galbraith's model around information sharing and teams or team systems and how do teams share that information and who gets shared what information, when and how. Then it gets into rewards. So who's getting rewarded? What are they getting rewarded for? And I'm not just talking about monetary rewards or financial rewards. There's other rewards that put you in a position to thrive or to get to the next level. Sometimes that's additional mentorship, but sometimes you get to go play golf with somebody that you don't get to play golf with. All these things matter and they're rewards, even though they're not direct or they're not necessarily financial. And then lastly, the one that we focus on the most in diversity, equity, and inclusion are the people systems. But even then, we're not thinking about it inside of the system. So what questions are we asking around our candidate and employee experience that DEI is infused in it? That's probably been the easiest one, but some people have built it into reward systems. So Rohini Anand has been a powerful force in really making reward systems and the work that she did with Sodexo and the work that she's done over decades. But very few have done this and built this into teams and measured it. Very few have thought about power dynamics inside of their organizational structure and measured it. And very few have been at the table building the strategy inclusively to see those people that are going to have to implement this strategy, do they fully understand their role in it and can put that into action and can make their contribution uniquely in a way that makes them feel as if their contribution matters? So I think if we think about systems in terms of the things that organizations do every day, not just this big macro conversation, these micro systems, things that all of us participate in, and we infuse DEI in there, I think we have a better chance of being able to have measurable results. Obviously, that can go for representation, but I'm talking about the things that everybody's talking about now, the sense of belonging, a sense of psychological safety, space where people feel like they could thrive and do their best work, they can bring their whole selves to work, all these kind of buzzwords that we have coming around here. I think if we think about that inside of those systems, it's a lot easier. And it also shows us when it's not happening, we have data come back that it's not happening. We can look to that system and say, yeah, there's something not working instead of just focusing on the symptom itself. What's upstream and where do we need to go back to retool that system? So those types of things happen either not at all or it's considerably less. That systems thinking is important across the organization. And what you mentioned is even in the people aspects of the business, the system thinking is important. And the focus has been more in many instances from what I've seen on the recruitment and hiring 
end of that system, which is why then HR's departments get frustrated where they're like, we've been doing a great job with the hiring, but we just can't keep <laughs> people in this organization because the system, even on the people side, it's a system. You can't just work on the beginning or the entree point to the system. You have to work on the entire system. So from the organizations that you see and the teams that you see, Amri, that do this, who owns it and how do they approach it? Because the system's thinking, typically, whether it's DNI or digital technologies, whatever it is, everyone says the CEO and the board needs to own it. I, and I totally agree. The CEO and the board needs to own it. And we do have CEOs and board members who listen to the podcast, but there are also lots of other people who are managers and are executives all throughout the organization. And they say, I don't own the system. Some other person owns the system, which by the way, I have to tell them when I talk to CEOs, they say, I don't own the system. And when I talk to board members, they say, I don't own the system. <laughs> Everyone, Because there are different pieces of the system that are owned by different people. So what teams, organizations, groups, individuals have approached this well, and how have they been able to impact this system? I think it starts with the individual and understanding your own lens and what contributions you're making. You know, this is a complex question. I have a tendency to have too complex of an answer, so I'm going to try to have a simple one. First of all, who owns DEI and organizations? the question I would ask back is who owns culture? And culture is the embodied experiences of everyone. And so if the embodied experiences of everyone are creating the culture, then all of us are responsible for the culture. And in essence, all of us are responsible for DEI. So now somebody will say, oh, that's an easy one, Amri. You can just put it on the brown people or put it on the marginalized or the people that don't have any power. That's not what I'm saying. Everybody at every level has different influence and therefore their contribution to the culture matters in some ways, the heavier weight than somebody else. So everybody has to own it. And there are certain things that have to be unambiguously prioritized inside of all the systems that we work in. So if you're thinking about organizational power dynamics and you're using your power just to wield something for yourself and that's brought to your attention or it's considered when you start thinking about the organizational structure, those people who have influence over that person that's misusing their power, their responsibility is to say, you're going to have to check your power and this is what we're expecting of you. Or we're going to have to ask, give you a generous severance package and let you go. So that's one place where hierarchy matters. And if people in that hierarchy are mindful of those people that are having heavy influence and getting in the way of people thriving, they should be absolutely talked to and then dealt with. So that's that place where people talk about the top. But when you get deeper into the organization, we have to create senses of agency for people. And I think while everybody's responsible for their peace, we're also responsible for our agency. And that means how we're interacting, how we're learning with each other, who we're going to learn from and with, intentionally building networks across people that you generally don't engage with. That's on all of us. And so if you stay in a siloed way of thinking or a siloed way of engagement, that's not the responsibility of the organization. Everybody has to take that on 
And you have to have some agency around doing that. So at the top, it's utilizing power as you move throughout the organization, particularly further down in the organizational hierarchy. People have to have agency and they have to do their part. So are they contributing to somebody who needs help? Um, are they just focused on their own career and don't make contributions to their colleagues? Are they making so many contributions to their colleagues that they can't do their job and they get dinged for it? Are they able to balance all that out? So there's a lot of kind of clear personal responsibility and agency and also self-awareness that you're doing what you need to do and also making contributions to others. And hopefully, if the organization has built it into their systems, they recognize that kind of leadership when people are doing a great job every day, but their impact is beyond just their particular role or their goals and objectives. I find that to be an empowering mindset that you share, Amri, in that, yes, it is a system and systems require systemic approaches. And in many instances, people higher up in an organization have more influence on certain aspects of systems. That doesn't mean every single one of us don't play a role. We do and can and should. It is not just saying, yes, change the system, change the approaches. Every one of us can play a role in making this difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. So another thing I would love to get your thoughts on, Amri, and you go into it in the book, is the conversation around meritocracy. A lot of organizations want to view themselves as being meritocracies, where people are advanced based on their merit. What is your view of meritocracy and the role meritocracy should play or shouldn't play in the kind of systems that make the organization more inclusive for all to thrive? Meritocracy is one of these things that it's a difficult conversation oftentimes because people will conflate meritocracy with merit. So I think people should have merit. People need to be rewarded for their skills and abilities and skills make the difference. We can't think that you have less skill and therefore you should get rewarded more. That's rubbish and it's not sound and honest thinking. At the same time, there's times where there are people in your organization that might not have had the exposure yet to be able to get to the place where they ultimately can get to. And how do you create those opportunities for them to get there? And the reason why they might not have gotten there is because they didn't have access to them earlier in their lives. One way to think about this, there's I tell a story in the book, this young lady she wanted to be a scientist. She didn't have a lot of early exposure to high-level science when she was in high school. But by the time she got to college, she was in college with people who had been doing high-level science in labs for a long time. But she worked, she went and got extra help. And then there were professors that saw her work ethic and they gave her a little boost. You know what? I want you to go and spend a little time with this scientist over at this campus. I want you to come in on Saturday morning and spend a little time with me working on this because I see you're working through it and I want to help you. But people gave them that help. And you can do that in organizations. You can call it mentorship. You can call it coaching. But you have to recognize potential, not just the fact that somebody might have had a leg up. So meritocracy was not meant to be a system in and of itself. And the original author that coined the term didn't 
want that to be the case. In fact, he wrote it with the idea that the people that are the richest and have the most resources are going to win, and the people that don't are going to be seen as less than. So he wrote it with that as a warning, and then it got taken as something literal. So the idea is, we don't want a system of meritocracy, we want a system of inclusion and development. So that young lady got development, inclusion, now she's in the United States um, executive health service. She's one of the highest government healthcare professionals in the federal government. And that's because she had the potential, she had the work ethic, she built the skills, and she had help. And so that's the distinction is we're not talking about anti-merit. We're talking about anti-system where some people, because they had extraordinary advantage, I've had extraordinary advantage in my life. I'm happy to be Black, but I had extraordinary advantage and help. A lot of my colleagues and friends of all races didn't. And so where do we create and find ways to close that gap as early as possible? But when you see potential in organizational life, how do we develop it rather than just kick it out? And that's what we've done. Somebody fails. Somebody's not up to speed. We can't promote them. Instead of giving them the time to get better, we just let them go. And hopefully they go someplace else and do great. But a lot of times it's so dejecting, a lot of people give up. So meritocracy has been more harmful than good. And I think if we think about inclusion and development rather than thinking about the myths that is meritocracy, the satire that was the rise of meritocracy, we will have a totally different way of of looking at meritocracy and not just anchoring on it as a tenet of organizational life. And I love the way you put it in that the opposite of meritocracy is not lack of merit. It is inclusion and development and the merits, what traditionally has been viewed as meritocracy, it doesn't allow for the development and then true recognition of merit. I love that perspective. Now, another thing we'd love to get your thoughts and perspectives on, Amri, is that we will see a lot more uses of AI all around us. Zoom has rolled out a feature where AI picks up your emotions. And some people say that there could be AI biases with the way those emotions are picked up and transmitted to all aspects of whether it is self-driving cars to applicant tracking systems, the AI that is used in selecting people for organizations to even AI interviews. So we have artificial intelligence all around us. And you go into the role of AI in DEI, and you ask the question, is this humanity enhanced or is it compromised? How can we approach AI in a way that it becomes humanity enhanced as opposed to humanity compromised? AI is not going away, Mahan. So since it's not going away, we have to be very clear about the inputs. And so when we go in and we talk about it as a system, AI is a system. And so it's a variety of different types of systems, but it's all using a certain type of coding to create certain outcomes. But the coding and the bias that goes into the coding, and I'm talking about bias in a neutral way, but the bias that goes into the coding is going to determine the way that the AI responds. So it's still our sentiments, our ways of thinking that are going into that system. 
So if we're very clear and we're really open with our AI, like a lot of times over the past few years, there have been systems that have depersonalized resumes and they took out anything that could be related, for example, to ethnicity or anything related to gender. And I think that's wrong. I think let all the data in and then see what the AI kicks out in terms of its selection. And then we can actually assess what came out of the system. And then we can analyze that data to see what the results are. And in some cases, the AI probably will outperform humans because the humans have biases that we can't see. But if the AI is programmed to basically mirror the biases that we have, it's not a good thing for humanity. And so let's use AI mindfully. Let's look at what AI creates and the outcomes that it creates, not just put stuff in there and blindly say it's okay because somebody over here programmed it and they're smart and they must be right. But looking at what it's creating and doing some experiments for when humans do it versus when AI does it, and then making choices when we use AI and when we don't. And so there's a lot of complexity. And the most important thing is that we're doing the research and the experimentation to see the outcomes and do everything we can to mitigate potential harm and find times and situations where the AI is creating thriving and generative organizations more so than humans might on their own. Human and machine are always going to go hand in hand. And if we're mindful of it, AI could be tremendous help to us. And if we're not, it can do great damage. And now we have to make sure it doesn't do damage in our organizations in a way, particularly around people processes where I've been seeing it used the most. We need to experiment and train the systems with the understanding, first of all, it is not an infallible system. It's a system based on decision criteria that are given to it by a group of humans who that initial group of humans were plays a role into it. The other thing that I'm a big believer in, Omri, is that it can't be a black box. We need to ask for greater transparency. If it's seen as a black box that then comes out with a decision, it's a lot harder to challenge those decisions. So we need much greater transparency in this process. Yeah, and that I actually talk about that quite a bit in the book. There was a researcher named Dr. Joy Bwola Wimi. She was at MIT at the time, and you've probably seen that documentary, Coded Bias. So she started seeing how there was bias in some of the visual AI And she called it out and she first went to the places that were creating the AI and she told them and some of them were like, yes, stay back. Others were like, we should look at this. Eventually, most of them stopped it. And so some of them continued, but the bias didn't necessarily get addressed. So we need to have people being very transparent about it. When you do that, you let the data be open source, let people analyze it, learn from each other. We can actually reduce the possibility of a whole Terminator scenario. (laughs) (laughs) that should be one of our goals whether in di or other aspects of our lives absolutely now amri you're also in basel switzerland and you're doing di globally and you have extensive experience here in the u.s i'm curious how is di viewed and approached differently in europe than it is in the states In some ways, it's not different, and then some dramatic ways that it is. And I'll start with how it is. It's different here because 
The conversation about race is relatively new. I think the murder of George Floyd woke that up. There's been colonization for a long time, 400 plus years, that have brought people from different ethnic backgrounds in the global South to Europe. So that's there. It still remains here. And in some cases, there's parts of Europe that people are heavily dehumanized and it's horrendous and it has to be addressed. In organizational life, obviously that probably happens, but it isn't talked about versus in the U.S. That's primarily what we talk about. So here, what I think is an opportunity, which I'm actually excited about, is there's going to be dynamics of colorism, racism, sexism, ethnocentrism. All these things are going to occur. How do you build things into the systems of these organizations so that you could address it rather than the reactive tenor that's happened in the U.S.? So I think that the opportunity in Europe and beyond in the global South is a bigger one. Because the diversity is actually, for lack of a better word, more diverse. There's more (laughs) dimensions and there's more complexity. You're dealing with dynamics of language. You're dealing with lots of dynamics of culture and values. You're dealing with different histories and you're dealing with different ages. You go into the African continent, it's young and vibrant and has billions of brilliant people. And so what are we going to do in that plurality and in those dimensions, tribes, et cetera? There's so many levels and things that we can do differently than we've done in the U.S. So I'd say uh, the biggest difference is we're not so focused just on race. They're still pretty heavily focused on gender, but I think that's a beginning. And my hope is that they don't take the turn and stay focused on single identities. And I want to be a part of bringing that into Europe and beyond, particularly in the global South, which is so incredibly interesting and dynamic to explore cultural intelligence, to explore some of the dynamics that I talk about in the book in a meaningful way to create inclusion systems where everybody can thrive and the organizations can create more value than just for themselves. It's a different but exciting challenge, and I can see you're excited to make a difference there. That's wonderful. Now, I wonder, Amri, when you are working with organizations or guiding leaders, are there any practices or resources other than your own that you typically find yourself recommending to them? There's a lot. There's certain things that I think everybody should be learning. And what I found in a lot of organizations is that people don't necessarily know how to do sense-making. So they don't know how to deal with ambiguity and complexity in groups and do that effectively and consistently. And they don't always iterate in a way that allows them to ask the right questions, to step back, to draw out all the interdependencies and actually think systemically, but also think systemically together. And so that's a skill that I always recommend for everybody. Everybody should learn coaching. I don't necessarily believe in coaching certifications per se, But I think everybody should be doing some type of coaching education and learning and practicing their coaching skills. And lastly, a lot of people have been talking about empathy. A lot of people need to learn more about perspective taking. And so I do a lot of work in cultural intelligence and perspective taking and metacognition, which is thinking about your thinking as a part of that. And those sets of skills are important. So Obviously, people need to have awareness, and that's important. But in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, the biggest problem is we're not building capabilities. And that set of capabilities, systems, sense-making, cultural intelligence, metacognition, perspective-taking, 
because you can't always empathize because you might not be that good at it, but you can take perspective. I think those skills are critical and I recommend them to everyone. Those are great recommendations for practices as we were talking about with more AI decision-making in different aspects of our lives, that ability to emotionally connect, perspective-taking, coaching. These are some of those human skills that will be of even greater value because some of the other elements can be automated or AI can (laughs) support us on. Amri, how can the audience find out more about you, connect with you, and find out about your book, Reconstructing Inclusion? Thanks, Mahan, again, for the opportunity. It's been a great conversation. You can find us at inclusionwins.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Omri Johnson. You type me in, I should be there. And you can always type in Reconstructing Inclusion in a browser, and it should pop up. The book's available now at whatever bookstore that you choose throughout the world. I really enjoyed this conversation, Amri, and want to close with a Dr. Seuss quote that you have toward the very end of your book. It doesn't matter what it is. What matters is what it will become. Thank you for helping us create what will become. Thank you so much, Amri Johnson. Mahan, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.